Welcome to the Ego Sumvia podcast with me, Father Andrew Eber. And as always, I invite you to begin by joining with me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, we offer you our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart, in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for our sins, for the intentions of all our relatives and friends, and for the intentions of the Holy Father. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you convert to Catholicism as an adult, it is little like emigrating to another country. You may well, for example, have found out as much as possible about that country, about its customs, laws, and practices. You may well have decided that this country is the one that will be best for you to live in. You may have investigated all that you can, weighed up the evidence, made your decision, and you may be happy and at peace with your decision. But deciding to move to another country and actually learning to live there day by day, week by week, month by month now, these are two very different things. And everyone who converts to Catholicism as an adult will have something or some things that, as they learn to live as a Catholic, they struggle with. Some part of that life that is particularly alien or unfamiliar to them and that they need time to get their heads around. If you come to the Catholic Church from a Protestant background, as many people do, then some of those unfamiliar things that can take time to get used to could be, and I'm just suggesting a few from my own experience of instructing converts, well, they could be the sacrament of confession, or the role of the Pope, or devotion to Mary. All of these beautiful and valuable parts of the life of the Church, but all of them often unfamiliar to people from a different Christian tradition. Now for me as a convert, looking back now, and this is looking back many years in my own case, looking back I don't think there were many things I really struggled with doctrinally. I think culturally there were some things. So, for example, if you are an adult convert to the Catholic Church, you will have, almost certainly, an enormous, sometimes life-changing reverence for the Eucharist, for the Holy Sacrifice, for the Mass. And you will equally, alas, almost certainly be amazed and disheartened at the extent to which Catholics take the Mass and the Sacrament for granted. I'm often reminded of the American Protestant pastor who visited a Catholic church and said, if you guys believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ, how come you treat him with so little respect? But anyway, that was, as I say, a cultural challenge, not a doctrinal one, perhaps one to reflect on in another podcast. But coming over to the church, certainly there were things which were very unfamiliar to me, and Mary, Our Lady, she was one of those unfamiliar things. I was brought up as an Anglican, 
in a little Anglican church in Suffolk, which was actually called St. Mary's. It was literally her church. But apart from the name on the map and on the notice board, you simply would not have noticed that Mary had anything to do with the life of that church. And indeed she didn't. She had, if you like, been whitewashed out of the church's life and history. So Mary and Marian devotion was one of those things I had to learn about in this new life as a Catholic. And it's been, I have to say, for me it's been a joyful learning experience, sharing, if you like, the joy of Mary in the visitation, which I always think is such an important example to us, the joy of getting to know Mary. It's been a great blessing that we have in our diocese the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham, and if you think of St Luke's repeated words about Mary and her response to the good news in her life, that Mary kept all these things, pondering them in their heart. Those words, I think, describe part of the experience of Walsingham, where if you can get there on a quiet day, you can ponder on the gospel and re-allow Mary to get into your heart. But for myself, the thing that has really, perhaps most of all, intensified my relationship with Mary has been the priesthood. And that was really what I wanted to share with you today, something of my own relationship with Mary as a priest, and perhaps those reflections will help you in turn to reflect on your relationship with Our Lady. We call Mary Mother of All Priests, and there are good reasons for that title, which I'll talk about in a moment, but it's important to remember too that these words, Mary, Mother of Priests, are not just an abstract title or a a pithy doctrinal epigram, but they refer to a relationship that's lived out day by day. So as a priest, I am attached to the cathedral in Norwich, and obviously I say Mass there very often. One of the distinctive features of the layout of the cathedral is that if as a priest you are saying Mass, when the Mass is about to begin and you leave the sacristy and process out into the main body of the church. If uh, at that point you look up, you are exactly opposite the great north window of the church, which is this vast and exquisitely beautiful expanse of glass dedicated to Our Lady of Walsingham. And there she is, high up, enthroned with her son as you process towards the altar. And I always look up to her there, and I pray for her to stand beside me in the Mass. There's a traditional prayer, you may have heard of, which I always pray in the sacristy as part of my preparation for Mass. Uh, And every uh, Mass for the priest should begin, let's say, should begin long before the bell goes. You need a good time of preparation, a good time of prayer in the sacristy beforehand. Anyway, there's this lovely traditional prayer which I say, which... Um, goes in part, I fly to you with all the affection of my heart, and I beseech your motherly love, that as you stood by your most dear son while he hung on the cross, so in your kindness you may be pleased to stand by me, a poor sinner, and all priests who today are offering the sacrifice. So I pray this, and then, as I say, I come out into the main body of the church, and I look up to Mary in this enormous window. 
Quite often I say, now you know, I can't do this unless you stand beside me. So I would say that my own personal priestly experience of Mary, which I think we can all share, is firstly one of dependence on her. But then I also want to share with you three examples from the scriptures, from the history of Mary's motherhood of Jesus, which really emphasize Mary's role as mother of the church and mother of all priests, and which might, in hope, I hope, uh, reflect in turn on Mary's motherhood for all the faithful. And I'm going to start, well, I guess, in a way, at the end of that history, which is with the crucifixion. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he hands Mary over into the care of St. John. He says, and I'm sure you'll remember this, he says to Mary, a woman, behold your son, and he says to St. John, behold your mother. And he hands her over. And it's a very poignant moment, in part because it reminds us of Mary's vulnerability. Our understanding from the tradition of the church is that Mary is a widow, that St. Joseph, who is not mentioned in the Gospels after Jesus' childhood, has died, and that Mary therefore shares in that terrible vulnerability of widows in those times. A widow, after her husband had died, would be expected to be looked after by her surviving children, but if she had no children, she might well end up as destitute. And this, for example, is why the early church, the Church of the Apostles and after, places such great importance on the care of widows. And perhaps also in that there was a communal memory for the Church of the Apostles of the Mother of the Lord. Because this is Mary's position. This is her vulnerability. Clearly there is no one else to look after her. So when Jesus on the cross speaks those words... It's a great act of trust on his part. Who can he find in the very moment of his death? Who can he trust to care for his mother? He turns to John. Behold your mother. And as the gospel tells us, from that hour the disciple John took her to his own home. And John, who is the model for all priests, the disciple Jesus loved, the disciple on whose breast he lay at the Last Supper, John takes Mary into his home, into his life. She is now bound up with his life irrevocably. And he literally takes the place of Christ as the son who looks after her. So Mary, through this action, this entrustment, becomes the mother of all Christian disciples, but in a special and intimate way, the mother of all priests. And then the second example. Now, this comes from the very start of Jesus' ministry, and again, this is something of an obvious example. I hope you'll forgive me for that, but it's worth reminding ourselves of it. It's the wedding at Cana. What does Mary say to the servants at the wedding at Cana? Again, I'm sure you'll remember, she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, isn't that just the best advice? Whenever we have a dilemma or a crisis, do whatever he tells you. Lay it before the Lord and do whatever he tells you, which is really 
what Mary does at the crisis of the wedding. Lay it before the Lord, do whatever he tells you. And it's also, I think, particularly appropriate for people discerning their vocation, discerning where God is calling them to be. And I've shared with you before how when I was discerning my vocation, a critical need was for me to give up my plans for my life, to let go of my plans, and instead to lay my life before the Lord, and then to do whatever he tells me. So for me, Mary has been a really helpful example as the mother of obedience. The mother of obedience. And that, I think, makes her, again, in a special way, a mother for those who offer their lives to God and the priesthood, but also for all of us who are seeking to hand over our lives to the Lord, asking him to take charge, knowing that only he can really direct us best. And then the final example, and again this is a terribly obvious one, but this is from the very start of that history, the history of Mary's motherhood of Christ, the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel sent to Nazareth. And again a very simple example. What makes the Incarnation possible? It is Mary's yes to God. I'm often reminded of St. Bernard of Clairvaux's account of this when he describes how all of creation, all the hosts of angels in heaven, hold their breath, waiting to see what Mary will say. Because Mary's words are not inevitable, she's free to say no as much as she's free to say yes. But Mary's yes is, at this moment, what makes the Incarnation possible. Her yes makes the birth of Christ possible. So Mary's yes is fruitful, that is the point. Mary's yes is fruitful. And this brings us, once again, back to Mary as the mother of priests. Because like her, the priest's yes to God is fruitful. What the priest gives to God, his life, his obedience, his celibacy, all bear fruit. Because God's generosity is greater than ours. And what we give, he multiplies and makes fruitful, just like Mary herself. Those who say yes to their vocation, to that call of Jesus Christ, that call which is always loving, but always in its own way, unnegotiable, even absolute. Those who say yes to that call always do so with Mary and under her protection. So it goes without saying, we should all ask for the prayers of Mary in offering our own yes to Jesus, to whatever he asks of us, to do whatever he tells us. But let's also pray particularly that there may be many more priests and religious to imitate Mary in offering that great and joyful and fruitful yes to God. Amen. And now for the Gospel from this fifth Sunday of Easter and my homily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, 
do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God still, and trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. If there were not, I should have told you. I am going now to prepare a place for you, and after I have gone and prepared you a place, I shall return to take you with me, so that where I am you may be too. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father too. From this moment you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, let us see the Father and then we shall be satisfied. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, said Jesus to him, and you still do not know me. To have seen me is to have seen the Father, so how can you say, let us see the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak as from myself. It is the Father living in me who is doing this work. You must believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Believe it on the evidence of this work, if for no other reason. I tell you most solemnly, whoever believes in me will perform the same works as I do myself. He will perform even greater works, because I am going to the Father. The Gospel of the Lord How can we know the way? This is a question many of us must have asked from time to time, perhaps even recently. How can I know the way? How can I know what is right to do, how to live? How should I spend my time? What priorities should I follow to invest my time and energy in? Jesus today gives us the answer. I am the way, the truth and the life. They are, are they not, beautiful and revolutionary words. Revolutionary for their original culture, the religious culture of Judaism, for the cultures that went before, and also for our own culture today. They are revolutionary words because they tell us that the secret of how to live well, how to live, that question that has vexed and stimulated and exercised every age down to our own, the secret of how to live well is actually a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So many books have been written about this revolutionary insight from the imitation of Christ, the Imitatio Christi in the Middle Ages right down to the present day, so many that it's uh, more than a little daunting approaching them in a single homily. But let's just look at each of those three elements the Lord offers. The way, the truth, the life. And just very briefly from different angles, reflect on each one to the glory of God. So firstly, the way. Ego sum via, as this podcast is titled. 
we know from the Acts of the Apostles that the very first followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. But of course, the way was not simply a direction. These first followers of Jesus, like the disciples who had instructed them, were following a person. A rabbi, yes, a teacher, but a person whose life itself instructed them. Whose life instructed them, whose death instructed them, and perhaps most of all, whose resurrection instructed them. Jesus and the person of Jesus is the constant for them, and for us, he is then uh, the continuum. Uh, I think a helpful method of approaching this was uh, provided by Pope Benedict when he spoke a few years ago about the Day of Judgment. Now, this might seem a little off-topic, but bear with me for a moment. Pope Benedict pointed out that some people are needlessly alarmed by the prospect of the Day of Judgment. He pointed out that we shouldn't be afraid of the Day of Judgment because there is one constant, one continuum, if you like, between our time, between our day, this day, and the Day of Judgment, whenever it might come. And that constant, that continuum, is Jesus Christ. It's very simple, this continuum, but worth emphasizing all the same. Jesus Christ is present on this day, today, this day that you and I are living, and Jesus Christ is present on the day of judgment. And if my relationship with Jesus is okay, is good on this day, if I've invested in that relationship, if I have attended to that relationship, if I've done my best to love and follow him on this day, then I have nothing to fear from him on that day on the last day, because he is the one constant, he is the way. And then the truth, ego sum veritas, again, revolutionary words. Jesus reveals the truth to us about ourselves. This was one of the great teachings of the Second Vatican Council. Jesus reveals the truth to us about ourselves. Pope St. John Paul II talks about this in his encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, the splendor of truth, very relevant to our gospel today, when he says, The decisive answer to every one of man's questions, his religious and moral questions in particular, is given by Jesus Christ, or rather is Jesus Christ himself. And the Pope goes on, in fact, to quote the Second Vatican Council from Gaudium et Spes, which says, It is only in the mystery of the word incarnate that light is shed on the mystery of man. It is Christ who fully discloses man to himself. So, really important, central teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Christ fully discloses man to himself. Christ reveals us to ourselves. These are themselves revolutionary words for the modern world. We don't follow Christ just, for example, to become better people, or, I don't know, to get brownie points or a quicker road to heaven, desirable as that might be. We follow Christ because he reveals the truth about ourselves. That the more we come to know him, the more we come to know ourselves, and to become, as I have often said, the people 
we were meant to be. And so you see the paradox, the great irony indeed, of the modern liberal secular world turning away from Christianity. The paradox is that the modern world's obsession with the self, with the development of the self, with the expression of the self, with self-love, self-esteem, self-development, with all these things, this obsession with the self can and will be fulfilled only by turning our eyes away from the self and fixing them on Jesus Christ, who reveals to us the truth about ourselves. I am the truth. And then thirdly, the life, ego sum vita. Once again, revolutionary word, because the traditional method, if you like, the traditional way of seeking out the secret of life is very different from ours as Christians. So, for example, you will see people in movies, let's say in fantasy movies, in adventure movies, people who seek the elixir of life. And it will be, oh, I don't know, it'll be a, a crystal or a potion, some magic cocktail or other. It will be this elixir, some glowing mystical element kept in a cave or a castle, somewhere really difficult to reach and surrounded by foes and dangers of every kind. That is, if you like, the iconic approach to the secret of life. But they have got it all wrong, these movies, these adventure stories. The elixir of life is not a potion, but a person. And then let's follow it through to its natural conclusion, uh, because the elixir of life, so to speak, if the elixir of life is a person, it is also a relationship, a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, knowing trusting, loving, serving, taking time to be with the person of Jesus Christ. And I guess that is why, in part, this podcast is called Ego Sum Via, I Am The Way. Because if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we cannot go astray. Let's pray then for the grace to invest in that relationship, as I say, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and our feet firmly set in his footsteps, so that through him we may come, as he promises us, to the Father, who is the source of all love, our origin, and our destiny. Amen. So as we come now to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. And as always, please do get in touch with any comments or questions, any suggestions for things we ought to be covering. You can uh, reach me on my Diocese of East Anglia email address, which is andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. Do get in touch, do look after yourselves, and I'll upload another episode next Sunday, and look forward to joining you then. Let's end then, as we always do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.